Well, let's read from the Word of God. We're turning to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 2, uh, we're beginning to read at verse number 5 and continuing to verse 18. Talking of God uh, subjecting the world to Christ as King. But it's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there's a place where someone has testified What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's very common today to be told that all religions are basically the same. If you boil them down, uh, we are told really they teach the same principles, the same truths, uh, and there's nothing really to choose among them. Uh, the reality, of course, is very different. And if you seriously study the different religions, you will see, in fact, that they are not the same. And indeed, the Christian faith stands out very distinctively from everything else that is on offer, as it were, in the supermarket of beliefs. One of the central doctrines that distinguishes our Christian faith, that sets it apart from all other belief systems and religions, is the doctrine of the Incarnation. The belief that God, the person of his Son, has taken into permanent union with himself human nature. And in no other religion do we find anything that is exactly like that. There are no exact parallels in any other belief system to the incarnation of God in a permanent way. The union of the divine nature and the human nature in one person. 
The gods of other religions may appear uh, in human form uh, for a time. They may take a body for a time, uh, but none of them has a belief in the incarnation such as we find it in the Word of God, in the Bible, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is central to our Christian faith. Without the incarnation of the Son of God, there isn't a Christian faith. And there is no salvation. I want to focus in on some words that we read earlier in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, relating to the incarnation of the Son of God. We're turning to Hebrews 2, and we're thinking particularly of verses 14 and 15. We read there, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We're thinking here in these verses of the theme, born to die. Born to die. Because Christ, as these verses tell us, was born to die. So what do they tell us about the Lord? Well, they tell us, first of all, about the Lord who shares. The Lord who shares. Now, in this portion of the letter to the Hebrews, it was probably uh, written to a mainly uh, Jewish congregation of Christians. The writer is stressing in these opening chapters the very close relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and his people. They are, as he puts it in verse 12 of this chapter, his brothers. Declare your name to my brothers. It's a quote from Psalm 22, in fact, that we sang a moment ago. Or again in verse 13, here are words in the mouth of the Lord Jesus, I and the children God has given me. That's a quote from the Old Testament as well, from Isaiah chapter 8. But they're reminding us of how close the bond is between Christ and his people. They are his brothers, they are his children, spiritually. And then we come to verse 14 that we're looking at particularly. And here we read about how the children, how human beings like us have flesh and blood. Literally, it says blood and flesh, but our way of putting it is flesh and blood. Because they have flesh and blood, the Lord Jesus also shares in that. Flesh and blood. Well, that's our condition as human beings. That's what you and I are. We're flesh and blood. It's not for a moment denying that there's also a a spiritual aspect to our being, that we have a spirit, we have a soul. But flesh and blood sums up our humanity, our human nature. That is what we are. God has made us in this way, flesh and and blood. And on the face of it, we couldn't be more different from God. 
If we are flesh and blood, and God, as the Bible constantly reminds us, God is spirit. John 4, 24, for example. Uh, there, there couldn't be a, a greater gulf between God and us. We are flesh and blood. God is spirit. And there's a great gulf between us. How could the two ever come together? And that, of course, takes us to the miracle of the incarnation, what the Son of God has done. He himself, we are told, likewise, and the NIV maybe just doesn't bring it out quite as clearly as it could. It says he too shared, but it's he too likewise partook of the same things. In the same way, we are being told that we are flesh and blood amazingly. God the Son, also flesh and blood. He has taken our human nature into union with himself. Likewise, he's flesh and blood. What does that mean? What's the writer to the Hebrews telling us? Well, how are we flesh and blood? We're flesh and blood because we are conceived, uh, we are born into this world, and we're being told the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, has gone through that same process. He has been conceived, he has been born uh, as a human baby. He's gone through the process that we did in order to live in this world as flesh and blood. Isn't that amazing? This is God who is spirit, who is also flesh and blood, born into this world like us, sharing our nature. The Gospels record this miracle. Now, Jesus was born into the world like any other human baby. It's his conception that's crucial. We talk about the virgin birth, but really, in truth, it's the virgin conception. It's at the beginning of his existence in human nature that the miracle takes place. The virgin conception of the Son of God taking our flesh and blood and then growing, developing, and being born into this world like any of us. Now, of course, there's a profound mystery here. How could little minds like ours ever understand or explain how the eternal, infinite God could take our human nature into union with himself, and yet that's what the Bible tells us. And we acknowledge it by faith. Though we cannot fully grasp it or understand it, but it is a glorious miracle work of God. He's born into this world with a nature like ours. And he grew up as a baby, as a child, as an adolescent, as a young man. He went through all those developments and processes, born into this world with weaknesses, with desires with temptations like us and the single exception that sets him apart from us is he was without sin like us in every way yet without sin 
We're reminded of that a couple of chapters later in Hebrews 4.15. He even underwent temptation like us, yet without sin. The Son of God, wonderfully in that human nature, has shared the full range of human experience. We can say that the Son of God knows human life from the inside, in that nature that he took and that he still has. Don't forget that. As Christ sits in glory at the right hand of the Father at this very moment, he has that human nature. Full humanity, understanding us, sympathizing with us, because he has that human nature. In the deepest sense, we can say the Lord Jesus Christ is our blood brother, our flesh and blood brother. He's the Lord who shares. He shares our nature. God couldn't come any closer to us than that, could he? Than to share our flesh and blood, to know human life from its earliest moment, and still to have that human nature in heaven today. He is the Lord who shares. But this verse also tells us that the Lord who shares is also the Lord who dies. The Lord who dies. Because you see, it is not simply by being born into the world that Christ fulfills his mission. It is not sufficient that he shares human nature. That doesn't save us by itself. Something more is needed. And this verse tells us precisely what he has done. Because necessarily, the writer goes on to speak about his death. By his death, he might accomplish certain things. It's not only that he is born into this world and shares our nature, but he has come in order to die. Without that death, he doesn't fulfill his mission. He doesn't accomplish the purpose for which he came into this world. He has come into this world with the purpose of dying on the cross. And we see how the Lord Jesus Christ had a very profound sense of having to die. It's not that the cross was a sad accident that he would have avoided if he could. Some kind of tragedy that we might regret he came to die. That's why he says, for example, in Mark 8, 31, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be killed. What is the must there? It's not a must because of the power of the Jews or the power of the Roman governor. It's a must of God's plan and God's purpose. That is why he must die. That's why he came into this world. Of course, the disciples found that tremendously difficult to understand and to accept. Uh, Peter, uh, for example, said to him, Lord, this will never happen to you. Maybe the kind of reaction we might have had. 
And that brought forth one of Jesus' most weighty rebukes. Get behind me, Satan. Any temptation to avoid the cross was from the devil himself. Because that is why Jesus had come. It is a divine necessity that he is the Lord who dies. And there are many dimensions to Jesus' death. It is so rich in the salvation it provides. And our first thought probably is that he died in order to deal with sin. And that is wonderfully and gloriously true. But there's so much more. And this verse reminds us of that. Because it focuses particularly on the purpose of Jesus' death in relation to the devil and to death. And really those are the the three dimensions to the death of Jesus. He died in relation to sin, certainly, but also in relation to Satan and in relation to death. And Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 focus our thoughts in on what does the death of Jesus mean in relation to Satan and in relation to death. If we think of Satan, look how he's described. Him who holds the power of death. See, death is an intruder on God's good creation. And death is the realm, really, where Satan functions because his only interest is in destruction to try and frustrate the purposes of God. Satan is interested in death, not life. And, of course, that's why he attacked man in the Garden of Eden, the image bearer of God. And because of sin... We know man fell, plunged the human race into sin and death. And because of our sin, we are subject to death and to the power of the devil. Now we might have paused for thought at this point and ask, well look, does that mean that it's the devil who's in charge of death and, and decides when people die and it's out of God's control. Is that what it means? But of course it isn't. The Bible constantly reminds us God's sovereign over everything and over life and death and even over Satan. God is sovereign. So ultimately, Life and death are in the hands of God. And it's God who passed the sentence on the human race in Genesis 3. You are dust, and to dust you will return. That's God's will and God's sentence. The devil, even as he carries out his evil and even as he brings about death it's still in subjection to almighty God that's a great reassurance to have that Satan even in doing such things forwards the purpose of the Lord and so when it talks about Satan as having the power of death don't be afraid and think well death is outside God's control it never is And even Satan fulfills the purposes of an almighty and a holy God. And more than that, look at what we're told. That the Lord Jesus Christ, by his death and his resurrection, comes to destroy him who holds the power 
of death. Here's a perspective of victory, of triumph that the Lord Jesus Christ has won. He comes to destroy the devil, not to end his existence because Satan will spend eternity under the wrath of God. But Christ has come to rob him of any power, any influence, any damage that he can do. Christ rips it from him and leaves him abject and powerless before a glorious almighty Messiah. Christ has come to destroy, to render powerless him who has the power of death. That is his goal and that is what he has achieved. And how does Jesus take the power away from Satan? Well, it is by his death. Because it's our sin that gives Satan a claim on us. It's because we're sinners he can hold on to us. The Lord Jesus Christ, by his death and his resurrection, has dealt with our sin, has provided salvation. And when a sinner like you or like me is saved, Satan has robbed of power over us. And we're liberated. And we're set free from bondage to Satan. Christ has dealt with the sins of his people. And so he has dealt with death, physical death and spiritual death. He has paid the price of our salvation, the price that is owed to God. We find that in such a glorious verse as 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Christ has taken the sins of his people, of all who will ever trust in him, and he's dealt with them, and he's provided salvation, and so Satan loses his grip. We are set free from bondage, and Satan, as far as the people of God are concerned, is rendered powerless. The result of Christ's atoning death is the end of the devil's power over those who are Jesus' brothers. In the infinite love and wisdom of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, by his death, has defeated the devil and has defeated death. Because now the grave is where Christ was and is no longer. The tomb was empty. And there's the testimony that can encourage us so profoundly that Christ has defeated the devil and Christ has defeated death. One of the great Puritan works about the death of Christ was by John Owen. And he entitled it, The Death of Death. And that is precisely what the work of Christ has provided. The death of death, as far as believers are concerned. Our sin and Satan and death are trampled under the feet of Christ. 
And that should lift our hearts and fill us with rejoicing. This is what the Son of God incarnate has accomplished. He has rendered the devil powerless. And he has defeated death. He has overcome it. He is the death of death for us. The Lord who shares shares our human nature with the sole exception of sin. He couldn't come any closer to us. The Lord who dies, laying down that human life on the cross to bear the sin and the guilt, the penalty that's due to sinners like you and me. And he's done all that's needed to set us free from sin. And to release us from the power of Satan and from the power of death. And so the Lord who shares and the Lord who dies is also finally the Lord who frees. The Lord who frees. This is a tremendous text about the freedom, the liberty that is given to sinners like us when we are brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian faith is about freedom. Sometimes to look at Christians, you wouldn't think they're living lives of freedom. But we should be because God in Christ has set us free. And verse 15 turns our thoughts to the results of Christ's death as far as we are concerned. The writer writes that Christ has come to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Death described in the Bible as the last enemy. And it is. Oh, we know that there are circumstances in this life where death has an element of release. Perhaps from pain and suffering. But in a deeper sense, death is an enemy. There's no right to be here. It shouldn't be in God's good creation. It doesn't belong here. Death is an enemy. The last enemy. In the Garden of Eden... The devil came to Adam, to Eve, promising freedom. When the devil said to our first parents, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, that was a promise of freedom. Instead of being bound by by God's law and God's will, listen to me and you'll be free. You'll be like God himself. That was the promise. And if ever there was a false promise, that was it. Instead of receiving freedom when they listened to Satan, what they received was bondage. They were slaves. As Satan himself, of course, is a slave. He's not free. He's a slave. And human beings now by nature are slaves. We're not free. Oh, we hear all around us in our culture people asserting their freedom to live as they like 
and do what they want and be whatever they want to be. But the truth is they're slaves. We're slaves to sin. We're slaves to Satan. And we're slaves, the writer to the Hebrews reminds us, slaves to death. We're prisoners. We're not free. And part of life in this fallen world as sinners is the fear of death that is mentioned here. Now, yes, death can be a fearful thing in the sense that maybe sometimes we wonder, how, how will it come? What, what was, is it going to mean for, for me or for a loved one? And there's fear in that. We can understand that. We may share that. But there's a fear of death in the human heart for a deeper reason. We fear death itself, rightly so, because of what lies beyond the grave for those who are in their sins. We should be afraid of death because if you are a sinner, you will die and enter the presence of a holy judge. And you should be afraid of that. If you're not afraid of it, you don't understand what it means. We should be afraid of death because of what it means for sinners. But now we're told the good news that God has provided the answer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the risen Christ who brings true freedom. Freedom from sin Freedom from death. As we're reminded in Acts 2 and verse 24, it was impossible for death to keep its hold of Christ. There's no possibility that Christ could have remained under the power of death. If he had, we would have had to conclude he's a fraud. He hasn't done what he said he would do. But he's risen. He's alive. He's in glory. Christ has conquered Death couldn't keep its hold on him. And that is why the Lord Jesus Christ is able uh, to say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. You'll find those wonderful words in John 11 at verse 25, we will live. In fact, we do live now. We have eternal life right here in this world spiritually. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been made alive. We have eternal life. Life in Christ. Life that will never end. The threat of eternal death and separation from God is now removed. We do not need to fear it. Death will not mean separation from God. It will not mean eternal judgment for the believer. Christ has set us free. And so we do not need to fear death. In God's providence, yes, we will still pass through physical death. But we do not need to fear it. Because it ushers us into the presence of our God, of our Savior. 
into the full enjoyment of what he has provided. We are set free. The Christian is the only person in this world who is truly free. Free in Christ. Free from sin. Free from the dominion of Satan. And free from death and the fear of death. The risen Christ says in Revelation 1.18, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. The keys of death are in the hands of our Saviour. And the Christian does not need to fear death. However, in the providence of God it may come, it will usher us into the presence of this great Saviour and his Father and his Holy Spirit. The Christian can be filled with hope even in the face of death because of what Christ has accomplished. The incarnation is crucial. He is the Lord who shares, shares our nature. He's the Lord who dies, dies in the place of sinners like us so that our sin and our guilt are dealt with and the claims of Satan upon us are ended. And he is the Lord who frees, frees from death and the fear of death, physical death and eternal death. In Christ we are truly free. Are you trusting in this great Savior? Do you believe he is God incarnate in human flesh? Do you believe that he died and rose again for the salvation of sinners like you? Are you trusting in him for yourself? Has he set you free? Free from sin? Free from Satan's dominion? free from death and the fear of death. May we be those who are trusting in this great Savior, the one born to die, to die for sinners, to set us free from all that holds us in bondage and set us free for eternal life with him in glory.